Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you haven't been with us recently, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we are in this particular part of the Gospel of Mark where Mark has brought together back-to-back three miracles uh, that Jesus does. Uh, we looked at the first one of these last week um, and saw at the end of that miracle, the disciples who are with Jesus are left wondering, who is this man that he can do such a thing? And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the second miracle. And my hope uh, and prayer for each one of us as we look at that together now is that God would speak to us through his word, that we would basically be left as those disciples were left at the end of last week's sermon, wondering who is this man whom God has given and that we could find hope in him. So uh, I'll be reading from uh, Mark 5, starting in verse 1. It's printed in the order of worship for you. Feel free to follow along there or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good. And let me uh, pray for us before we talk about this passage. So, Father, uh, the story that we've just read in the Gospel of Mark is, uh, needless to say, a strange one for many of us sitting here in this room this morning. But I pray, God, um, as many uh, barriers as there might be for us, as strange as it might seem, I pray that you would speak to us the word that we really need to hear from this passage. I pray that you would show us Jesus. Lord, you know each one of us. You know uh, the faith 
and the doubt with which uh, we are before you right now. You know the weeks that we've had. Um, and I want to ask that whatever's going on in our lives, that you would speak to us. And that that healing power of Jesus would speak to that particular part of us as well. I pray this through him. Amen. Sometimes uh, one of the best ways to get to know someone is to take a trip with them. I'm sure uh, you can maybe think of times in your life when you've uh, been on a trip, whether long or short, uh, with someone before and uh, had that experience of getting to know them. There seems to just be something about having that prolonged uh, period of time uh, with someone, as well as seeing someone in a variety of circumstances that can surface things about people we may not otherwise see. So one uh, trip that I think of uh, that did this for me was a trip that I took about a decade ago uh, with someone who was a mentor of mine. His name was Bill, and uh, for one week we went to Bangladesh together. Now that was uh, my first time, and so far only time to Bangladesh. I loved it, would highly recommend going if you haven't. Um, For Bill, Bangladesh was a place where he went. For years he had been going frequently uh, to Bangladesh. And so what that meant is that uh, when I was with him there, that uh, together we spent a lot of time visiting uh, his many Bengali friends. Together we, uh, we sat down with uh, various members of Bengali churches. Together, uh, for a couple days, we traveled to this remote elementary school that had actually been named after his daughter, Elizabeth, who had died a few years before that. That actually was, for me, the highlight of the whole trip. Uh, Together, we ate some pretty uh, fantastic uh, Bengali food. And together, because of bacteria found in that pretty fantastic Bengali food, we were also hospitalized. Now, there is, uh, as I learned, nothing like being hospitalized together uh, to get to know someone. We uh, were not only in the same hospital, but in the same room, sharing the same bathroom. And uh, this was a hospital that was specifically known for its specialty in gastrointestinal disturbance. So Bill and I had a number of uh, moments uh, throughout that whole week. And as I look back on that journey, I can really see that that was a trip that I needed. It was a time in my life when I really needed something like that trip for me. And looking back, it was also, I would say, the time when uh, the friendship between Bill and me got cemented, that we developed over the course of all the experiences we had together, all that time together in all those contexts, um, a trust and an appreciation for each other that may not have happened had there not been that trip. So up till now in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus and his disciples have been hanging out in their homeland, the region of Galilee. But now at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is saying it's time for us to take a trip. Jesus wants to go on a trip with his disciples so that they can come to know some new aspects of who Jesus is. Now, this trip uh, that Jesus is taking with them right here is a relatively short trip. It's kind of a there and back uh, kind of trip to the eastern side, uh, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Last week, Pastor Aaron preached on uh, the journey by boat to that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so now at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples find themselves landing on the shore on that other shore on the other side. And we read that as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, 
onto the shore, a man comes running out to meet him. Now Mark, right away in those first few verses, tells us some things about this man. First, this is a man with an unclean spirit. We're going to come back to, uh, to what that means in a few minutes. But that's what Mark tells us straight up. He is a man with an unclean spirit. We're told he's a man who lives among tombs along a mountainside. Night and day he cries out and he cuts himself with a stone. Finally, we're told that the people who lived nearby this man had tried many times to subdue him in horrific ways with with chains and shackles. But Mark says that at least now that does not work anymore. The man, empowered by the unclean spirit, simply breaks those things off. He shatters the shackles. Now, it's hard to imagine someone more tortured than this man is. Think about all these things Mark has told us. This man is living a life gripped in evil. He's living in a kind of dungeon. He's alone. He's destroying himself. He literally lives with the dead. Now, there's some other details that Mark tells us that, that might actually get lost on us in our context, but would not have been lost on the disciples. You see, the, G, the Jews of Jesus' day, and I think many of you know this, had very strict rules about what was clean and what kept one clean and what was appropriate for a Jew to, to, to do and to eat and where a Jew should be. And the very place that Jesus has taken his disciples at this point violates four of those things. They are in Gentile, that is non-Jewish territory. There are unclean spirits, tombs, and pigs. It's like four strikes right off the bat against where any group of Jewish men, or let alone a Jewish teacher, should be visiting. Nevertheless, that is the place, and that is the man that Jesus takes his disciples to visit. And it's not like this place and that man are just kind of like a a stop or along the way to whatever their final destination is. This isn't just like something they have to pass on the journey. No, this place and that man are the journey. They are the destination. Jesus has taken his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee for this man. And the first reason that Jesus would do that is to show them that This is where Jesus goes. He goes to where you would least expect him to go. The Jesus that they've been with is someone who is going to go straight to the outsider, straight to the unclean, straight to that place where evil has its strongest grip. He's going to go directly to wherever there is seemingly no hope. And that has got to leave the disciples wondering, and us wondering today too, where else will Jesus go? What grip of evil may be in your life, or in mine, or in the life of our city? What place of no hope in our nation or in our world, where is it that he will go? And whatever it is that you're thinking of, whatever that place, that grip of evil is for you, whatever it is we could really think of, seeing Jesus as we see him here, we can bet that he's headed right to it. 
Now, in the middle part of uh, the passage before us, Mark describes how it is that Jesus heals the man, how it is that he sets him free from the unclean spirit. But before we get into the particulars of, of that, I think it's worth us pausing for a moment to talk about the existence of these evil spirits. You see, while it may be true that Scripture itself assumes uh, that spirits like this and that, that the devil exist, while it's true, it's been true for most cultures uh, throughout human history and many cultures even today that that assumption is just made, uh, that's not the case in the modern West. To us in the modern West, the idea of devils or of, of uh, Satan or, or demons, it feels pretty primitive. We think that we have replaced those beliefs, those primitive beliefs, with more sophisticated, more accurate ways of understanding the world. But I think this passage and, and other ones like it in the Gospels would have us ask the question, is that actually the case? Is our more modern, thinned-out view actually a better explanation? Is it even sufficient for explaining the world as we see it? So let's take, for example, um, a book written by Hannah Arendt. So Hannah Arendt was um, a German-Jewish woman who ended up in the U.S. Uh, she, was, she was a writer, a philosopher, a political theorist, and she wrote a book called uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, A Report on the Banality of Evil. Awesome title, particularly the second half. A Report on the Banality of Evil. And in this report, she's basically collecting uh, her coverage of a trial of this man called Adolf Eichmann. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi, and he was tried for his war crimes in 1961 in Jerusalem. Um, Eichmann was, in particular, uh, one, one, one guy who was behind the machine running the Nazis' genocide program. So just hearing that about Eichmann, I think all of us in this room would flat out agree, as, as Hannah Arendt would and, and the whole world really, that this man has done tremendously evil things. Unspeakably evil things have come from the acts of his hands. He is, in a sense, the quintessential image of evil in modern form. And yet, as Arendt is observing him in his trial, she sees something that is really disturbing to her. And it's this, that Eichmann was appallingly normal. You see, one would think that for Eichmann to have done all the horrible things that he did, these extreme acts of evil that many of us cannot even imagine, for him to do that, he himself and his motivations had also to be extremely, abnormally evil. But that's not what Aran sees. What she sees is that he is extremely normal. And the things that motivate him are extremely normal. They're things like wanting to be dutiful, wanting to be promoted at work. You know, maybe some of the same things that motivate us also. That is what Arendt calls the banality of evil. Now, Arendt isn't saying that Eichmann is not responsible for what he did. He is. But she is arguing that there is something bigger at work. There's something bigger going on in this one man's evil 
than this one man. His, the evil that this one man has done cannot just be explained with reference to himself. There is something much bigger going on. The Bible portrays what's going on with our world, with people like Eichmann and, and all of us, really, with a great deal of nuance and complexity, much more so than our modern views would have. So we may try to re- reduce explanations to, well, it's, it's a, there's a psychological explanation, or it's, it's an element of that person's own free will, or it's the biology of this, or it's the society. And Scripture embraces all those things, and it says, and yet there's even more. It says, Scripture says, it is both the individual and the social. It's both the material and the spiritual. And it's both the natural and the supernatural, for evil and for good. All of that is working together. And the biblical view of evil, I think, gives us a much better explanation, a much more powerful explanation for why so many of our problems seem so intransigent. So much like we, we cannot get rid of them. They are just there to say, and also so much more aggravated than the sum of the parts. When we think of wars, when we think of a nation methodically collaborating to carry out a genocide, when we think of generations of racism and slavery, when we think about how corporations can coldly and seemingly blindly exploit the weak. When we think of urban violence. When I even think about how I, as an individual, can be tempted to forget God. The Bible says that there is much more at play in each of these situations than just the sum of the parts. We are responsible for what we do. But scripture teaches that there are also bigger forces at play. The forces at play in the passage that Mark, that we have before us in Mark is is certainly dramatic and that certainly can happen. But I would argue that often those forces are much more subtly at play in our world. It's like how the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, if you let the sun go down on your anger, you're giving an opportunity to the devil. That just by letting the sun go down on our anger, we are in fact collaborating with, with evil supernatural forces. There is a lot at play in every situation. And so what that means is that we need help. And we need a lot more help than we can even appreciate. We need help individually and socially. We need help materially and spiritually. We need help naturally and supernaturally. And the Gospels show us that Jesus came to help in every one of those ways. Now, in our passage, um, and really in, in every other passage in the Gospels where demons and Jesus have a confrontation, it's interesting, by the way, that you, you see demons rarely in Scripture. It's rarely talked about, but mostly in the Gospels when Jesus is doing his ministry on earth. There's something about his presence in particular in our world that brings that underlying evil right to the surface. Well, we see in each of these cases, as we see in our passage, that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. 
actually better than the humans do. And they're terrified. They know that he has come to help roll back evil in all of these ways. And so as we see in our passage, they're trying in every way to manipulate him into going soft on them. We see that he, they show up with a legion to him. A legion would have been like 6,000 foot, footmen in a Roman army. They show up with an army of Satan in the face of Jesus. And yet even with that, even when Jesus is faced with a legion of evil, a legion of Satan's army, it's so clear that he is the real authority in this passage. Now, there are other records um, of people from the ancient Near East performing exorcisms in the ancient world. One consistent thing that we see across most of those is that whoever is doing the healing has to, to speak these incantations with a lot of fervor and has to call on higher powers. There's often a long ordeal involved in it. But here, as with everywhere that we read about Jesus confronting demons, Jesus does not do this. He simply speaks, and it happens. There's no effort on his part. He's not appealing to any higher authority. He is the authority. Even a legion of demons can't do a thing without his permission. And to top it off, and I I love this, how Jesus shows his, his authority in this particular way, Jesus actually gives these demons permission to do what they want to do. Now, we don't know enough about the interaction between spirit and body to know exactly why these demons wouldn't just be okay being cast out, why they want to be cast into these pigs in particular. But that's what they want. They ask Jesus for permission for it. He gives it to them. And so the demons enter those pigs, and Mark tells us that a herd of 2,000 swine runs down a steep bank into the sea and drowns. Think about how Jesus is showing his authority in that and the brilliance of his authority in that. He gives the demons permission to do what they want to do. And what ends up happening? They end up in the same sea that Jesus in the preceding passage has shown that he is the one who has complete control over. It's like we're being showed that even when Jesus lets you do what you want to do, you are still within his reign. He is still the one with authority. Now, the rest of our passage is just fallout from that. News spreads and people come to see what's happened. When they arrive, Mark tells us that they saw the demonized man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What? These these people are more afraid of Jesus than they are of a legion of demons? Well, yes, they are. And so they beg him to leave. You see, the terror that uh, this demonized man had before was something that they themselves could not bind. They had tried, right? With their chains and their shackles, they had tried. And yet now that man sits next to Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And the only explanation is that Jesus has more power in his words to bind and to free than these men could ever have in their shackles and chains. That is a man with authority. And their suspicion is that it might not extend just to this individual man. So they would rather, like when we're honest, many of us also would rather 
stick it out with what they know, then take a chance on Jesus. Now, the man who has been healed has the opposite response. He knows that Jesus offers something better, and he wants to stick with him as closely as he can. But as Jesus teaches here, sticking with him can look different for different people. And for this man, this man who has been an outcast from his own home, who has been living alone among the tombs, Jesus says sticking with him looks like going back home. It looks like being restored to his home, but in a different way now. He now comes home with a story of healing. And when Jesus tells the man to do this, when he restores the man to his home with a story of healing, we are given a model of how Jesus always sends the church into mission too. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of aspects of the church's mission that we could think about and apply this to. Let me just tell you about one, uh, one that I've been thinking about personally a lot in particular lately, and that is church planting. So if you don't know, uh, we as a congregation are committed to starting new churches um, across neighborhoods in our city as a way to love our city. And there's right now a group of us who are currently working on starting a new church in the Austin Oak Park area. Now, it might be possible for us to, as a group, to look at the people that we have within us and to do inventory, right? To kind of take stock of the strengths that we have and the gifts that we can bring and our abilities and maybe the sway we might have in the community and maybe the answers that we could have to the problems and the needs around us as a community. And in fact, we, we should take stock of those things. But those things by themselves are like the shackles and chains that the townspeople use to try to bind the demonized man. It's not that they are bad in and of themselves, but they by themselves are, just think about it, no match for the actual challenges and needs in our communities. They by themselves don't offer healing. That goes for the ministry of church planning and any other small group or the way that you're caring for family, anything God might be calling you to in mission, that same thing goes. However, Jesus has given us something that does point to healing. It's a story. It's a story of how he has had mercy on us and healed. You see, Jesus sends us into mission not in spite of our wounds, He sends us into mission like he sent this man into mission because of our wounds and because of the healing we have experienced and are experiencing in him. He sends us home with a story. Now, that story includes this individual man in our passage, but it also is a lot, lot bigger than that. In a few chapters in Mark, Jesus is going to set out on another journey, This is a much longer journey. And at the climax of that journey, it will be Jesus himself who will be naked. It'll be Jesus who is rejected by his people. It'll be Jesus who's crying out in anguish. It'll be Jesus who is being torn apart in his flesh. It'll be Jesus who ends up at the end of it on the outside of town in the tombs. It'll be on the cross where, once again, Jesus gives permission to Satan. 
And this time, permission to do what Satan has wanted to do all along to Jesus. But through that journey, through the cross, Jesus will once again be shown to be the one who has authority and the authority to heal. Through that journey on the cross, he will defeat all evil, spiritual, physical, in every way that we need that. He will finally bind Satan and all his minions. And he will bring healing not just for this one man, but for all the nations. This is the Jesus that's worth taking a chance on. Because he is good. And as surely as he rose from the dead, we can trust him to meet us and our world with the healing that we need in every way. So let's turn to him in prayer. Jesus, we turn to you because there is no one else like you. There's no one else we could turn to who offers grace and truth, who offers life and forgiveness, even in the face of our sin and of death and of every evil, both natural and supernatural, that we and our world face. So we pray that you would heal. We pray that you would heal us. You know those particular areas of our lives where we are gripped by evil, those places where we feel like we have no hope. And we pray that you would heal in your way and in your time. We pray you would do that for our city, for our nation, for all the nations of our world. And we pray that you would give us faith to look toward you and to wait to you until all your healing work is complete. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.